the patient faced an agonizing choice. Above the cries and moans of fellow sufferers on the fetid ward, he listened as the surgeon outlined the dilemma. If the large swelling at the back of his knee was left to continue growing, it would soon burst, leading to certain and painful death. If, on the other hand, the leg was amputated above the knee, there was a slim chance he would survive the crude operation, provided he did not die of shock on the operating table, or bleed to death soon after, or succumb to infection on the filthy ward days later. But he would be permanently disabled. For the 45-year-old hackney coach driver, both options were unthinkable. Since he had first noticed the swelling in the hollow behind his knee three years ago, the lump had grown steadily until it was the size of an orange. It throbbed continuously and was now so painful he could barely walk. Extended on the hospital bed before him, his leg and foot were hideously swollen, while his skin had turned an unsightly mottled brown. Once the coachman had gained admittance to St. George's, having persuaded the governors he was a deserving recipient of their charity, the surgeon on duty had lost no time in making a diagnosis. He had seen popliteal aneurysms at exactly the same spot on numerous occasions, and knew the prognosis all too well. It was a common enough problem in the cab driver's line of work. Aneurysms could happen to anyone, anywhere in the body, but they appeared to occur with particular frequency among coach drivers and others in equestrian occupations in Georgian London, in the popliteal artery behind the knee. The condition in which a section of artery that has been injured or otherwise weakened begins to bulge to form a blood-filled sac may well have been triggered by the wearing of high leather riding boots which rubbed the back of the knee. As the aneurysm swelled, it not only became extremely painful, but made walking exceedingly difficult. Whatever the cause, the outcome was often an early death, if not from the condition itself, then from the treatment generally meted out. To lose his leg, even supposing the coach driver survived such a drastic procedure in an era long before anaesthesia or antiseptics, would mean never being able to work again. But to carry on working, navigating his horse-drawn carriage over London's rutted and congested roads, would be equally impossible if the lump was left to grow. Either way, the cabbie feared destitution and the workhouse. But there was a third choice, the surgeon at his bedside now confided, on that early December day, for a coachman sufficiently willing or desperate. In his slow Scottish lilt, redolent of his humble farming origins, the surgeon laid out his scheme for a daring new operation. Surrounded by the poxed, maimed, and diseased bodies of London's poorest wretches, huddled in their beds on the drafty ward, the cabbie resolved to put his life in the hands of John Hunter. Without a doubt, John Hunter's reputation was well known to the coach driver long before he limped through the portal of St. George's, for he was generally acknowledged as one of the best skilled surgeons in London, if not Europe, and was a favourite among the well-heeled and the unshod alike. 
as well as working for no recompense, patching up the poor in St. George's. He was in constant demand from the fee-paying patients, who thronged each morning to his fashionable home in Leicester Square, or called him out for consultations in the elegant drawing-rooms of their West End villas. For all his blunt manners, coarse speech, and disdain for fashion, he currently sported an unkempt beard, and tied his tawny-coloured hair behind his head in preference to wearing the customary wig. Hunter was firmly established in Georgian high society. He visited court as surgeon extraordinary to George III, dined with the society artist Sir Joshua Reynolds, and debated science with his close friend, the well-connected naturalist Sir Joseph Banks. Now aged fifty-seven, with seventeen years' service at St. George's under his belt, Hunter was renowned for his pioneering and controversial operations. Only two months before the coach driver's admission, he had skillfully cut away from the neck of a thirty-seven-year-old man a massive benign tumour weighing more than eight pounds and roughly the size of an extra head. The relieved patient had walked away with only a long, neat scar as souvenir of his ordeal. Hunter was popular with the medical students, too. The coachman had watched the eager pupils trooping devotedly after their teacher on his ward rounds, for more students flocked to Hunter's side than to all the other surgeons at St. George's put together. Aspiring young surgeons travelled not only from the far reaches of the British Isles, but even from across the Atlantic to walk the wards at Hunter's side and hear their hero expound on his radical views in the private lectures he held at his home each winter.